Soul of the artist number two, renewed by the work. Last week, I said that we are creative because we're made in the image of the creator. And I said that we're each here to bring order out of chaos. And this time, I want to add a couple more layers to that. The first is this, that as we fulfill our calling to bring order to the disorder of the world... Doing the work itself actually brings order to our internal world. Something about hearing and heeding the call of God on our lives begins to set us right, even as we're setting the world right. So to be engaged in the good, the beautiful, and the true is inherently healthy. That's the first layer. The work does us good. And the second layer is that because the work is healthy for us, then when setbacks and troubles hit, we need to get back up and get after the thing that we've been created to do. That's the whole sermon in a nutshell. The work heals us while we're healing the world. So when we face setbacks, we need to get back up, know what our calling is, and press forward in that work. That's what we need to do. We need to do what we're here to do even when we don't feel like it. Sometimes when I'm blue, down, and depressed, and I can't seem to break out of it, Carrie will say to me, you know what you need to do? You need to go pastor some people. Because whenever you do that, you leave the house feeling sad, but you come home a lot more encouraged. And of course, the hard part is that when I'm in that state, that's literally the last thing that I want to do. When I'm sad, I don't want to go out. I just want to hibernate. Like all winter. Sadness has a way of making me, maybe some of us, reclusive, introspective, introverted. Nothing wrong with being introverted, but if that's at odds with your calling, it could have a, you could have a problem on your hands. What I'm really trying to say is that when I'm in that condition, the last thing I feel like doing is the thing I need to do the most. And it's the thing at that point I feel the least qualified to do. What, bring encouragement to others? I'm discouraged myself. But as I sit and I listen to someone else's troubles and as I enter into their story and as I feel alongside of them what they're feeling and as I share whatever the Holy Spirit might bring to my mind and as I love them without trying to fix them, something about that holy process does my soul good, starts to put me back together. As I'm working on what I'm called and anointed to do, I'm being worked on. It's almost like as I put myself in the center of my path and move forward, without even realizing it, I've also put myself right in the center of the potter's wheel. And I've noticed it's a lot easier for me to believe God for you than it is sometimes for me to believe God for me. But as I speak those words of encouragement to you, I sort of can't help but get a little on me. Proverbs 11.25 says that those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. And when I'm doing what I'm made to do, it's inherently restorative. It's also, also, totally engaging. The thing you were made for calls on your full focus. And that's really important. I read a book about the flow state a few years ago. The flow state is what athletes call being in the zone. It's what writers experience as the opposite of writer's block. It's what musicians like Red Hot Chili Peppers bassist Flea 
talks about as being a conduit for the music to come through. Oh, he's not writing songs. He's hearing them. I love that. Here's the definition of flow. Flow, also known colloquially as being in the zone, is the mental state of operation in which a person performing an activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement, and enjoyment in the process of the activity. In essence, flow is characterized by a complete absorption in what one does and a resulting loss in one's sense of space and time. So I read a book about flow, and the author, whose name I cannot pronounce, but here I'm going to try, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. It looks Russian to me. I am confused. Anyway, the author described our mental capacity in computer terms, and he said that our brains can process like 120 bits of data at a time, and listening to a person, he said, costs about 40 bits of data, which you do the math, that leaves 80 bits left, which is what fraction? That's like, what, two-thirds left over? Or if you want to do in percentages or decimals, that's like, what, three, 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 endlessly? Which is a lot of our mental focus is still available. I find that interesting. It leaves a lot of our RAM unused listening to just one person speak, which helps me kind of understand why when I was growing up in school, they, they would start lecturing in math, and then my brain would go, boop, and then all of a sudden, the next thing that I heard was, so your homework is due tomorrow. And I'm like, I don't know what just happened with that 45 minutes, but I was in dreamland. And then they would write on the teacher's report, he's a dreamer, needs to apply himself, shows potential though, if he would just try. Now I understand why. You're only taking up a third of my brain. That's the state that many of us, it's the opposite of flow. Many of us know this state, we call it boredom. It's the opposite of flow. So many of us, when we're bored, we've learned to gravitate to something else that just gives us a little hit of dopamine. You know, the content-consuming activities I referred to last week when I said we're not made to be content consumers, we're made to be content creators, we're not made to be passive observers, we're made to be active participants. But we kind of go to the quick hit of dopamine sometimes when we're bored. You know what I'm talking about. More on that later. We're made, though, to seek enjoyment, not just pleasure. Pleasure is just what feels immediately good, like ice cream, Instagram, TV. But enjoyment is deeper. Enjoyment is that work or that play, it can be play, which, while satisfying, also comes with a sense of purpose and a challenge. In fact, the enjoyable activities are probably not going to be engaging unless they are also challenging. Simple, quick pleasures only hit us with a brief shot of dopamine, but then they leave us feeling as though we've wasted our lives. Enjoyable work, on the other hand, actually helps us write a good story with our life. And if we keep on living a life that we believe is a waste of our life, that's the point that many of us begin to lose hope. I think burnout usually has less to do with overwork and more to do with internal chaos or disorientation. Pastors, when polled, they said that their burnout came from relational conflict, not overwork. Interesting. We all know that's true. Just like as soon as I said the sentence, you all said, well, duh. Enjoyable work requires a sweet spot between success and challenge. If it's too easy, we get bored. And if it's too hard, we get discouraged and quit. 
So we got to be good enough to feel the satisfaction of progress, but the bar of challenge has to keep rising incrementally so that as we add new skills, new challenges are added as well to keep us focused and fully engaged. If you think about most of the things that you love, they have this. And you can explain it. I don't, I'm not going to take the time. Enjoyable work, apart from also being challenging, needs clear rules. Yeah, rules. You can't have fun without rules. Any game you want to play, what's the first thing you need to establish if the game's going to be fun? The rules. If there's no rules, no one's going to play. Everyone's bored. Think about when you were a kid, that one kid, he would be like, oh, we're going to change the rules of the game halfway through because it's my ball. No one wants to play anymore. You just want to kind of tackle that kid, kick him a couple times, and then take the ball and go play a real game with rules. Limitation, in other words, actually creates the context for ingenuity and creativity and satisfaction. Without limitation, if the options are too endless, we get, we get overwhelmed and kind of bored. That's fascinating. But let me give you two examples of total focus. Super Mario speedruns and uh, a rock climber named Alex Honnold. I was recently watching some YouTube videos of original Super Mario Brothers speedruns because my time is important to me. So I was doing that. And I was, I was learning. I was learning how they, they just maximize every single detail of each level to shave off frames. Frames. Individual frames. I was talking about like a video game that has, I forget how many, like, if, like a high-speed video game nowadays would have 60 frames a second. We're talking about these guys for shaving frames off their speed run. This is a hundredth, these are hundredths of seconds. And they keep finding within the tight parameters, within the limited rules of this classic 8-bit 1980s game that the tiniest differences of their performance can be perfected. You thought that was the perfect speed run and now we got two more new world records in the past seven months or whatever. But you thought they already had it, everything perfect. But if someone leans against this block at just the right time, pushes this way, then it fools the computer and they go inside the thing and they go past that. If instead of jumping on the flagpole at the end, you jump right next to the flagpole and jump up, it skips the going down, the flag going down, and he goes straight into the castle. Ha ha, that's 15 frames. They figure all this out. You might think that's a strange sport to watch. But if I made you watch the videos, I think you'd be impressed to see these humans utterly focused on a perfect performance to come up with this is the world record right now. Four minutes, 55 seconds, and 796 milliseconds. 496 milliseconds. Second place is four minutes, 55 seconds, and 913 milliseconds. Ha ha, loser. And that guy's like, man, just a minute ago, I was the world record holder. Hmm. Without rules, we quit. Here's another example of focus. is one of my heroes, Alex Honnold. Here he is, thousands of feet off the ground. He's my absolute hero in terms of this level of like perfection at his craft. And he has to be because he is a free solo climber. Free solo means you have no rope. What you have is a little bag of chalk and some climbing shoes. And that's it. So if you make a mistake, if you fall, you die. I think he said like 36 of his friends have died. He was the first person to free solo El Capitan, El Capitan, El Capitan, El Cap, El Cap in Yosemite National Park last year. I think it was June. So, and, and it's like he did it in three hours and 56 minutes. Okay, but that's not every single move was perfectly memorized and choreographed and trained for. 
Every single move was not only choreographed, memorized, and trained for, but some of the moves required him to do specialized physical training of strength and stretching and balance. In other words, to do it with a rope, the best climbers in the world are going, this is a crazy thing to do. With a rope. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Because there's some difficult sections. Let me give you an example. There's one particular move where it's thousands of feet up on the wall and he had, to, he, had a, he had a handhold, but the handhold was facing down. And it was just a slot enough to fit this part of his thumb against it. And if he pushed down with his foot and up with his thumb, that was his handhold to get up to the next level. If he could swing his leg up and around and pull himself over to the next hold. This is a crazy move. So he had specialized physical targeted training every night to get the flexibility and balance to get his legs to do what they shouldn't. Oh my goodness. Now to do that move normally with a rope, the rope takes away a little bit of the fear. But he needs to get to the place where he can do something that's extremely challenging without fear because the second you feel fear, your muscles tighten up, your stomach tightens, your diaphragm closes, you stop breathing and you die. So if he can't control his fear, he's dead. I love this guy. They call him Alex, no big deal, Honnold, because he totally under, he just, yeah, it is a difficult thing to do. Like, that's how he talks. He's like, yeah, it is challenging. I guess it is fairly dangerous. No, I try not to tell my mom when I'm on the wall, because she'll worry. It's stupid. I love it. The average person watches what Alex does, and we think, oh, man, he knows what he's doing. He's a professional. But his peers, his peers, his friends, who do this every day, They think he's right there out on the hairy edge because they actually understand what he's doing. You and I are like, ah, he's not going to fall. He's a pro. They're like, I can't watch. That's why he's the only one who ever frees, like at that point, that's why. Like no other human in history, the the history of the planet, looked up at El Capitan and said, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go up on there and climb that. Nobody. Nobody. Except Alex. When he's climbing, he's fully present. When he's climbing, everything fades away. The, fa- the past is gone. The future is gone. There's only one thing going on. It's the movement of his body on the rock. It's total focus. He listens to the wind. He listens to the bird. He said, sometimes there's mice up there. There's video of him climbing El Cap, breaking this record, and he is whistling. <laughs> Love it. Total flow. We need flow to recharge. Our souls actually recharge more like car batteries than cell phone batteries. Cell phones, you put them in airplane mode so that they're not being used and they charge better. Or you turn it off and it charges even better and the whole time you're using it, it's depleting. Car batteries are different. You use the battery to get the starter to turn the engine over to get it started. But after that, the alternator is actually running off of the engine and it's charging the battery. So actually, this, the whole time it's doing its job, is being depleted. But cars, the whole time they're doing jo- their job, the battery's being depleted. Of course, the fuel's being depleted, but yeah. The battery's being charged. Our souls charge like a car battery. If your soul is depleted by what you're doing, you're not doing what you were created to do with the majority of your time and energy. 
Because the thing you were designed and created to do will recharge your soul. You'll have more joy, more energy, more hope. You'll be more in the zone, more in the pocket, and more restored when you, begin, when you end than what you had. Now, it might cost you some soul to get into it. It might pull some voltage out of you to put yourself in the position to do the thing you're called to. But once you're in it, there's a replenishing supply. That's how I think we humans work. Not through passivity, because that's a lot of us, oh, we've got to get some R&R to recharge. Maybe, because you can do that. You can take a car battery that's, that's dead, and you can hook it up to the wall and give it some R&R to get it recharged. But what is that telling you? Something's wrong. Okay. I want to talk about bouncing back. Two examples of bouncing back. Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak built the computer company Apple literally out of their garage. And from day one, innovation was like the driving energy behind everything. Hardware innovation, software innovation, creative thought about how people would use Apple's products to make their daily lives better. At the time, the concept of people owning a personal computer was a novelty. So actually, Apple was creating products that there wasn't demand for. You understand? There's demand for can openers because we know what they do. There was no demand because we didn't know what they were for. Personal computer. What? Like a few years ago, to to illustrate the point, nobody had cell phones except a few pretentious, self-important, rich people. Who needs a cell phone? Who do you think you are? Most of you have one right now. And it's a personal computer. I'm just saying... When you're an innovator, you're, you're creating products that there's no demand for. And that created problems for Steve later from a business standpoint. Because half the job, half the job of an innovator is actually to communicate and cast vision to the public so that we can see what we can't see that they see. And he was awesome at this. He was such a masterful communicator that he actually convinced one of the key uh, CEOs or leaders at Pepsi to come work for Apple because he said, you know, do you want to keep selling sugar water for the rest of your life and be filthy rich or do you want to come take a pay cut and change the world? And then he left. And then that question did all that work. The leader from Pepsi did come work for Apple and as he applied his business savvy business sense to the data at Apple, he said, wait a minute, the financial strength of your company is built on the Apple IIe. This is the one that's actually selling. This is the one that schools want. This is the one that the average people want to use. And Steve's like, yeah, that's two years obsolete and I'm bored. I'm already on to the next project. This has limitations and we fixed them all with the next one. Well, but the next one was cost prohibitive. It was, you know, it was to make it better, they had to have better hardware, which cost them more money, which meant the price to the consumer was, was more and people didn't know what the computer was even for yet. So why would they need more specs? What did more specs even mean? It wasn't selling. So this new guy convinced the board to say, Steve's wasting too much time and energy of the company focusing on these new products instead of focusing on selling the product that we already know works. He ended up getting forced out of the company he built because they tried to tether him selling a product he was no longer passionate about that he knew was obsolete instead of releasing him to go be an innovator, which was all he ever wanted to be. So they forced him out. So now what? Fired from the company you built. What do you do? That's kind of what life is like, isn't it, sometimes? Uncreation happens. Chaos happens. So what do you do when chaos happens? Well, if we're made in God's image, what we should do when chaos happens is we should get to work creating. 
But you and I have met people whose whole life is now defined by what went wrong. It's the, it's, it's the identity card they carry in their wallet. That if you ask them who they are, this is the story that defines them, is what went wrong, what was done to me, what I've lost, what I don't have. And it's their excuse for not being who they were made to be. So what did Steve do? Well, he went back to work. He started a computer company called Next, which picked up right where he left off at Apple. Next was super innovative. Their computers were expensive. Their computers, their computers were... They pushed, they pushed all the limits of the time. But he didn't see a whole lot of market success. They were so advanced that hardware prices were high. But he didn't stop pushing. Steve believed that computers were tools for artists, not just math nerds and like people who want to run sp- spreadsheets. So he said, I'm going to build beautiful fonts into these things and I'm going to make them music capable and art capable. In 1986, he bought the computer animation division of Lucasfilm to make cartoons with computers. None of you have heard of Lucasfilm's computer arts division, but you've all heard of what Steve did with it. It's a little something called Pixar. He did this after Apple fired him, after he started up his own computer company, again. They made some movies you might have heard of, like Toy Story, Wally, The Incredibles, Cars, Ratatouille, Finding Nemo, and other ones. Meanwhile, Apple fell on hard times because they didn't have an innovator. They had a group of people thinking about the financial bottom line and what works. What's going to make sales better this quarter instead of what makes amazing products that will help people daily? Somebody finally came back as CEO of Apple and they said, you know what we really need to break us out of this funk is we ought to buy next Steve's company. Then we'll get him as part of the package. So they did that. And then Steve got that guy fired and took his job because he had better vision and more, you know how he was. He's a bit of a jerk, but... And then with him back at the helm, they released in 1998 the iMac, the all-in-one iMac, which was at the time a revelation. And then in 2000, Apple decided to go ahead and drop the interim CEO from his title and just make him the real CEO. Fast forward to the iPhone, which was the first of its kind. We all just take for granted that every phone in our pocket looks this way and works this way. But it was the iPhone that started it. This ushered in a seismic cultural shift. Maybe you don't know it, but Google's Android is basically a ripoff of the iOS operating system in the same way that Windows is a ripoff of an early Macintosh operating system. And he was always mad about both of those and would point that out. But he tried to make peace with Bill Gates when he came back to the company and even collaborate on some things to put the feud to death. By the way, if you've never listened to Steve Jobs' 2005 Stanford commencement address, it is brilliant. He did end up dying of pancreatic cancer, which, you know, some of the pictures you find of him near, that, near the end, he's much thinner. But his commencement address was just, I I loved it so much. His final words were, stay hungry, stay foolish. He just talked about his journey of nothing, he he didn't do anything that made sense. He did what, what spoke here. And so the art, when he dropped out of college and then audited these art classes on how to have beautiful calligraphy, because he wanted to, it had no connection with anything in his life, it had nothing to do with computers, it had nothing to do with anything. But all that calligraphy knowledge he sucked up just because it spoke to him and it was beautiful, it all went into the beautiful fonts 
of the iMac. And, of course, Windows stole those too. (laughs) But in other words, don't compromise. Do the thing you're here to do, even though they might fire you and they might not understand you and it might not even make you money. Do that thing you're created to do. I'm going to make another interesting connection. Have you ever thought about how sometimes you shouldn't cast out a demon out of somebody? Jesus said, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. And then it says, I'll return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it founds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. And that is how it will be with this wicked generation. Interesting. Jesus says, if you cast a demon out, but you don't fill the house with the right things... The end result is that he'll end up, the person will end up worse than before. And then Jesus says, and that's how this generation is. Now, I'm not actually saying there's a time you shouldn't cast a demon out of somebody, but if they aren't called to change the root issues that let it in in the first place, you're likely harming them. I've seen that literally with demons. I've seen somebody where we cast a demon out, they started sleeping at night, but they didn't repent, they didn't, they didn't close the doors, and then I won't tell you the rest because it's too gory. But Jesus applied this principle not to demon-possessed people, but to his whole generation. He said, that's that's this whole generation. Y'all get a little religion and it makes you worse than if you had none. A passive mind, this is my application. A mind that's swept clean, but not filled with the right focus, the right mindset, the right thoughts, the right beliefs that come from the right activities is a haunt of jackals. There's no breath of God. But on the other hand, a house filled with the engaging activities of inspiration is too full to get into. The lights are on, there's laughter, there's songs, there's the smell of food, someone's home. So sometimes when I'm tempted to brood over a circumstance that I have no power over, I will intentionally choose instead to throw myself into meaningful creative work that calls on all my energies and all my focus. I hack my own system because I know how I work enough to put this principle to work. I've noticed that when I do that, I don't have enough RAM left over to worry. And instead I experience God on the same day that I could have wasted. But if I just sit alone passively with my thoughts during a season of travail then no amount of trying not to worry will ever be effective. Because you're so far from the divine flow at a time like that, that your mental house is just swept clean by the passivity, and it can just become a canvas to paint paintings of bitterness, worry, worst-case speculation, and of course their useless friends, self-pity, discouragement, and resentment. And if you go along like that for very long, that thing will fashion, shape, and mold you. But Jesus knows exactly what to do when we face setbacks. When we're wronged or when we face major setbacks, there's, there's nothing more dangerous than, dangerous than sitting around and stewing on it indefinitely. He said this. Is that a train? Thank you. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. When he taught us to bless those that curse us and pray for those who persecute us, he was giving us an activity He was, we need an activity. He was giving us an activity to engage in. 
If we can direct our energy, see the sin against you creates, a, a, creates a, an inertia and it has to go somewhere. And if you simply say, well, I'm not going to become bitter, I'm not going to become resentful, but you don't do something positive with that inertia, it will go somewhere negative whether you wanted it to or not. Jesus knows this. So he calls us to actively become creators. We have to direct our energies toward the good, the beautiful, and the true so that we can defeat the monster without becoming a monster. Now let's talk about Conan O'Brien real quick. Conan had been promised (laughs) Jay Leno's spot when he retired in 2010, and then Leno did retire, and then he did get the spot. However, NBC didn't like the ratings that Conan was getting. They expected him to do better with the younger crowd, and they didn't like it. So what they ended up trying to do then was bring Leno out of retirement and give him that slot and move... Conan back to the later night slot, which was where he was in the beginning. This is the death of his whole dream. Part of the problem was how NBC was tabulating their data. Nielsen ratings for the show, this was back in the day, 2010, there was still this shift to digital that, of course, you know, big companies, they don't, they just don't even think this way. They think slow and everything's fine and everything's, we'll just keep doing more of what used to work in the 50s. What? And I wish that I had invested in Netflix back in like 2007 when I knew it was going to blow up, I knew it was going to blow up. I was like, man, they got to do streaming. And then as soon as they did streaming, I said, this is the thing. This is the thing. Why don't I invest in all my intuitions? They've always won. Anyway, but Nielsen, they were looking at who was watching TV and the younger viewers weren't watching TV. They were watching Conan on YouTube the next day. So the network executives said, oh, I didn't perform with the, di- with the group that we wanted. So they wanted to cancel him. So that was his dream and poof, it's gone. So what did he do? Did he sit at home and brood? No. On the very last day of the show, he hatched a plan to go on a comedy tour across America. They made him sign a settlement that said, I'm not going to be funny on TV. So he sat down and he wrote songs about what happened to him and he went into his pain like a diamond mine and pulled all of the stuff out. Songs like On the Road Again became My Own Show Again. I can't wait to have my own show again. And there's one sketch where he's lying on the ground with a big pot belly and unshaven, his hair's all crazy. And he's just like passed out. He's wasting away at the home and his phone's next to him and it rings and he goes, a job? Can I have a job? I need a job. Hilarious. Just making fun of his own pain. They announced that he was going on tour on his website. The website, you know, basically crashed. They sold everything out in a couple of days. Or actually, most of it was within an hour. They're like, Toronto sold out. This thing's been live for 15 minutes. And then he's like, I need to get some material together now because apparently this is happening. So he got dancers and musicians and comedians and friends and they went on tour. They went all over the United States, like 40, 50 uh, locations. Sometimes two places because they were so booked they sometimes played two shows in a row, two days in a row. And they called the whole thing the legally prohibited from being funny on television tour. Brilliant. This is what you do with your pain. This is how you heal. You don't sit at home passively sulking and saying, oh, we can't believe they fired me. This is all I ever wanted. They're so mean. He wrote songs. He wrote jokes. In one, he actually dressed up like a network executive and was a complete jerk, and it was hilarious. He took the five, this, there's seven stages of, of, of dealing with grief, and he made them hilarious. This is, how we, this is how we heal. We bring it out. We talk about it. We keep moving forward. In one interview, Conan was asked, like, why can't you just stop? And he said, what do you mean stop? What does that even mean? 
I pretty much have fun when I'm with writers or musicians and we're working things out. That's when I'm content. And after the tour, TBS tried to hire him to do a late night show at the 10 o'clock slot. And he refused to join TBS because they were going to push George Lopez's show back to the late night slot. He said, I'm not going to do to him what they did to me. And then George Lopez called him on the phone and said, you got to come. We need you at TBS. So then he did. But here's the point. If God made you funny, then what do you do when you're betrayed? You go out and be funny. You make people laugh. Just because something ugly happened in your life doesn't mean you stop making beauty with your one life. Don't let sin against you make sin in you. Jesus said to shake the dust off our feet when he told his disciples to go through the cities of Israel, telling people the good news about the kingdom and demonstrating it. He expected you were going to be rejected by some of these towns. And what he said was, when it happens, not if it happens, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town, which is fascinating because he could have said, Listen, you guys are probably going to get your feelings really hurt, and I get it. I mean, I'm hurt. You may want to take a sabbatical. You may want to get some inner healing. You may want to take a rest. You've been through a lot. He could have said that, but he didn't say that. What he did say was, when they reject you, don't take it personally. Shake the dust off your feet and keep on trucking, son. This is how it goes. This is who we are. This is what we do. So if they don't like your message, find some people who do. Now, I'm not saying don't take a sabbatical, and I'm not saying don't get inner healing. I believe in Sabbath, and I believe in healing. What I'm saying is that we got to do... I'm going to do some Oscar Tucker. Oh, baby, we got to do what you've been called to do. It's through perseverance that the setbacks become setups for comebacks. We've got to get back to the why behind our what. So if you're me, if you're a preacher, and you got into this because of the beauty of God's love and grace, thinking about and talking about the gospel just makes you happy. And telling people about him, sharing him with people, it's satisfying. So what happens then? What do you do when you experience setbacks and struggles and betrayals and whatnot? Somebody might say, well, Tim, you can't just keep going or you're just going to be preaching out of the well of your pain. And I say, no, you've got to keep right on preaching without denying that you're in pain. You've got to intentionally take your pain to God and encounter Him again, just like you did in the beginning, over and over again. Right in the very moment of pain and hardship, that's where Jesus works best. That's where this gospel is designed to work the best. You've got to let the pain become an unintentional ally of yours that drives you deeper into God. Like Jonathan David Helser sings, All the way back, all the way back, all the way back to my first love. And if you can't, like if you just can't seem to find him, even then don't stop. Keep right on proclaiming this gospel to others in the confidence that as you bring the light to others, it starts to sink into you. Whatever you do, don't let that ugly thing that happens to you stop you from making beauty with your one life. Don't you quit. Don't you quit. All right, final story. Derek Rose, 50 points the other night. The other night, Derek Rose had a 50-point game. 
Now, you might not be in awe of that. If you're in the worship or the ministry team, you can go ahead and come up. Erica, you can, you can come up. Maybe you don't remember back in 2010-11 season, Derrick Rose was the MVP playing for the Chicago Bulls. But he played so explosively with his hard cuts and his shake and bake and his wild, passionate movements that he blew his knees out so many times. He ended up injured. He had like five reconstructive surgeries. And after the surgeries, he was like never the same. And now he's considered an aging player. Every single time he tore something or broke something, he probably thought, I'm done. I'm probably done. It takes a certain mindset to push through that emotional pain and that mental challenge and that physical pain of the, of the, of the, the rehab. He's played for three other teams since the Bulls. The Timberwolves have him now, and he views himself as the seasoned veteran who can help these young pups find their place. But the other night against the Utah Jazz, he was in the zone. He was in the pocket. He was feeling it. And he put up a career high career high 50 points at the end of the game he put in two free throws to give his team the edge and then in the final seconds he deflected Dante Exum's three-point attempt to seal the win and the crowd began to chant MVP MVP and after the game a reporter wanted to interview him but she had to wait because he was on his knees with his face covered in his towel and weeping. So why did that performance mean so much to Derek Rose and why does it mean so much to me? It meant so much because it didn't come in 2010. It didn't come with his best physical health. It didn't come when the brands were vying for endorsements and teams were positioning to get him. It came after the injuries. It came after the trades from teams who no longer saw him as a franchise player. It came after the setbacks, after the analysts' voices outside and the voice of his own fears inside said, I think I'm done. I think he's done. So his 50-point game, to me, was really something special. It's my favorite kind of story. It's the kind where the hero doesn't quit. It's the kind where the odds are stacked against the little guy, but the little guy, his spirit just doesn't get snuffed out. It's the defiant joy of someone who can't quit. They don't know how to quit. I don't know how to stop because I'm still in love. Someone who, when everything goes wrong, gets back out there and gets to work. And that sets the story right. Go ahead and stand. Thank you for your patience. I know I went a little long today. Holy Spirit, I'm asking for the mental grit to push through the pain, to put ourselves in the position of doing what we've been created to do, to use our will to place ourselves in the flow where the Holy Spirit's power can restore as we restore others. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and come forward for prayer if you'd like prayer. And some of us are going to pray for Erica, so if you'd like to pray for her, go on and get up here.